This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Presented by Clear. Enroll today at clearme.com slash Ion Travel and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Putacana in the Dominican Republic at the Putacana Resort and Club. You may know because the United States State Department issued travel advisories about it when they had about nine unexplained deaths in 2018-19 and people were worried about their personal safety, people dying at all-inclusive resorts. Well, it's time to put some of that in perspective. And I've been coming to the Dominican Republic for more than 35 years. I have never felt unsafe. I've never felt in any danger. But you do have to address these nine unexplained deaths uh, that happen in different all-inclusive resorts and mostly uh, Americans, a couple of foreigners as well. The more I started to look into the story, the more I had more questions about it that didn't make any sense about any kind of a pattern that would scare me. So let's talk about this. What happens at, at, at all-inclusive resorts on the very first day of people's travel? Well, they drink like fish. And then, you know what happens on the second day? They don't remember the second day. Then what happens on the third day? They wake up and go, what did I do? And then they drink more responsibly and have a great vacation. I'm not saying that happens to everybody, but there is a pattern of behavior when it comes to alcohol consumption at all-inclusive resorts. Okay, put that thought on hold. Let's move on. What did In trying to investigate this story, you have to ask yourself the question of what did all these resorts have in common that could have led to these unexplained deaths? Was the alcohol tainted? Well, it turns out they get the alcohol from different people. The odds of that being tainted are a little bit remote. Possible, but not really. What did the autopsies show that were done by the coroner in the Dominican Republic? Well, in many of those cases, and by the way, this is over a wide range of different people with different medical histories, different ages, they're all reported, or almost all reported, as having heart attacks. So that raised my eyebrows because I couldn't understand how that would have all happened to everybody. So I started to look for more opportunities to connect the dots as to what did these resorts have in common. 
And the only answer I could come up with is who distributes things to these resorts? Towels, silverware, insecticides, cleaning solvents, etc. And it turns out that when it comes to cleaning solvents and insecticides, it's basically coming from one company. Now, this happens in every hotel. Anywhere you want to be, from Boston to Bangladesh, it doesn't matter. Hotels get insecticides, especially resorts, or cleaning supplies uh, or cleaning solvents in concentrated form. Concentrated form with strict instructions that you cannot use it unless the unless the solution is properly diluted. Let's assume that they all got the same insecticide, which they did. They all got the same cleaning solvents for the carpets, which they did. And I'm sure they used them. How did they use them? Were those solutions properly diluted? Now let's cut back to alcohol. So you have a couple coming back from an evening out or a day at the beach where they're dehydrated. They've been drinking nothing but alcohol. Uh, they're a little bit smashed. Hey, they're on vacation. They come back into their room or even on the way back to the room, they may have come in contact with the the grounds around the room if it was a first story room where the insecticide had been sprayed. They ingest some of that highly concentrated liquid with those chemicals or they come into the room and the fibers of that carpet basically retained the undiluted strength of that toxic cleaning supply. And guess what? That could have easily triggered acute respiratory failure, which by the way, is often misdiagnosed in many locations around the world as a heart attack. Are you getting my drift? Now let's say I'm totally wrong. Let's say everything I just said had no impact whatsoever, there was no connectivity, and we still don't have an explanation for the deaths. All right, then let's run the numbers. Millions of people visit the Dominican Republic every year. We're talking about a total of nine deaths. There are probably nine unexplained deaths in Indianapolis right now, and it doesn't stop me from going to that city, and it doesn't stop me from being here. So... I guess I'm proof of the pudding that you can come here and have a great time. And guess what? Those numbers are coming back and people are doing just that. For their part, the Dominicans have established a much more rigorous security protocol, a much more rigorous vetting protocol for the deliveries to the hotels, ranging from insecticides and cleaning solvents to the alcohol itself. And nothing's been reported since. So I'm going to say I'm rolling the dice and telling you I'm not worried. And I don't think you should be too. Now, you do have to, you do have to practice some common sense. Nobody says to drink like a fish is a good idea. Nobody says to act irresponsibly is a good idea. Come down, have a great time. And if you're like me and you're going to stay at an all-inclusive resort, that doesn't mean you can't leave the resort. You should. Get out there and immerse yourself in the culture. Hang out with the people. See exactly the food that goes beyond just resort food. You'll be pleasantly surprised. Joining me now, somebody who knows a lot about it because he is the vice president of Grupo Punta Cana's corporate environmental programs. And somebody, I spent some time with him earlier today, who really is doing some innovative work uh, on the reefs and with the coral, uh, Jay Keel. How are you, sir? Hi, how are you? I'm good. I mean, I go to so many resort destinations where everybody's talking about climate change or sustainability. It's probably one of the most overused words, sustainability, I've ever heard. It goes back to the days of the original ecotourism. Sure. Uh, or, and nobody really defines it, so people think, you know, they're doing good just by talking about it. You guys are doing something quite innovative when it comes to the coral reef here because, you know, if you take a look, and you and I, you and I talked about this off camera or offline, when you take a look at the cycle of nature, you know, and here we are uh, with coral reefs that surround the Dominican Republic. If you don't have parrotfish, you don't have coral reefs. If you don't have coral reefs, you don't have tourism. And you don't have a natural protecting barrier from storms. I mean, it's all linked together. Yeah, and it's actually, it should be part of our business. When we talk about coastal tourism, we're really selling a few different products, right? We're selling this vacation experience. People come here, they save up all year, they come to Punta Cana, and then they want to have this beach experience. But the beach doesn't happen unless we have coral reefs. The coral reef isn't healthy unless we have healthy parrotfish populations and other organisms living on the reef. And then all that... Um, protective service that the coral reef provides for the beach and for the resort infrastructure. So really, you know, when we think about coastal tourism, we should be thinking about the ways to protect those ecosystems that maintain coastal tourism. Well, let's help everybody connect the dots here. Okay? Sure. We mentioned parrotfish. Sure. What does a parrotfish have to do with a coral reef? So when you, you come on vacation, you go snorkeling, you see these beautiful, colorful fish. Some of them have sort of a big parrot-like looking mouth. Um, those are parrotfish, and they play a critical function on the coral reef ecosystem. What they do is they graze on the coral reef, and they eat algae. And so algae, in check, is not necessarily a bad thing for a coral reef. If you have some algae there, it's okay. 
what the coral, what the parrotfish does is it maintains that algae cover to a manageable state. When you remove parrotfish, then the algae begins to overgrow the coral. And so that's a critical, critical problem. So what scientists have found, and there's been considerable research on this, is that all of the reefs around the Caribbean that are in the best shape have one thing in common. And they a all lot of parrotfish. They have a lot of healthy parrotfish populations. And what do the parrotfish actually do to make this happen? So they chew on the, the reef, they eat algae on the reef, and when they do that, they pull up small pieces of, of coral. And when they chew the coral with these sort of teeth that they have with their with their, they their got mouth. Big they got big teeth. Yeah, that's why they call them parrotfish, yeah. and they chomp away. And then their excrement is actually the white sand that is on the beach in the, in the Caribbean. And so the parrotfish is not only maintaining the coral reef healthy, it's also it's pooping out sand. So we have the parrotfish poop to thank for white sandy beaches. Right. All of these hotels in Punta Cana should have the parrotfish as their mascot. It should be the most important species. We don't have elephants here. We don't have rhinos. We don't have these charismatic things you see in Africa, but we do have parrotfish. All right. So if I fed a parrotfish a prune, <laughs> would right. we have purple sandy beaches? It's possible. <laughs> it's possible. I had, to do, I had to go there. But in all seriousness... You have to, first of all, protect the parrotfish or you can't protect the reef. That's right. And so what we've been doing here in our foundation is we've really been working closely with local fishermen because local fishermen in general... They needed to be educated that they have to find another source of income, otherwise they'll overfish. That's right. And so what's happened over time is as, as, par as fishermen have gone after the commercially viable species, you know, the snapper and the grouper and other things in the beginning to diminish those populations... Then they've moved down the, the food web, and they call it fishing down the web. And, uh, and essentially, when they fish down the web, they end up at parrotfish. So those are high ecological value, but relatively low economic value in terms of what they, they sell for on the market as a, as a food fish. But it's still, because the parrotfish, generally speaking, they sleep at night, they're very easy to capture. And so the fishermen can haul in huge quantities of parrotfish. Okay, can I ask a really sure. stupid question? Yeah. <laughs> Let's go beyond food and talk about people who have aquariums. Yeah. Right? I mean, are some of these fish being taken and used that way as part of the overfishing? Yeah. I think the, the main problem um, with parrotfish is consumption more for, for food fish, and it's local. Um, in terms of the Dominican Republic, we are one of the largest exporters of ornamental reef fish, and so that's another challenge. And so when you um, collect wild ornamental uh, reef species and it's not a regulated uh, art, you know, not a regulated practice, then that puts a lot of pressure on local populations. And so all of these factors, you know, you have climate change, you have uh, nutrients being added to these coastal ecosystems from hotel development or from other activities. You have overfishing of parrotfish and other critical species. All of a sudden you start to have real pressure on these, on these reefs. So when something like a storm happens, the reef is much less resilient than it might normally be. And so that's when we get involved with trying to restore the reef. I mean, your first priority should really be to protect it and conserve that coral reef because of the value it adds to your hotel. But then we get into restoration. But given all the challenges you just mentioned, it would, I would almost presume you have a losing battle here. I think, I think over time what we've shown is that reefs can be resilient, but we've got to put effort into protecting them. We've got to really invest in trying to restore some of that balance. So we had to have healthy fish populations. We've got to try and have as much coral as we can. We've got to really improve water quality and try and minimize the impact that coastal development has on these reefs. But it can be done. There's lots of examples around the Caribbean and Mexico, other countries in the Pacific, where they've shown that if you restore some of this balance, reefs are fairly resilient. They come back and they can, they can serve some of these functions. That they because all I've do. been hearing for the last 10 years is the problem with dead coral. Sure, sure because it's spreading and because many of the factors that are causing these problems have not been addressed. And so we've continued to see decline of coral reefs. We think there's starting to be a certain amount of awareness of it. I think we're also starting to see coastal developers are really understanding that these ecosystems provide a function. They protect their resorts and not just the beach, but they protect the, the human infrastructure, buildings and pools and any other construction you have are better protected when you have a healthy coral reef. Well, there's a reason why they call it a barrier reef. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's a protective barrier. Exactly. And one of the more remarkable things that I saw with you earlier today is what you're working on with basically trying to rehabilitate coral. That's right. Um, it's sort of like this amazing, innovative, you know, new age surgery of, of well, anything short of what we would call like a skin graft, right? Right. 
So until uh, pretty recently, you know, in the last 15 to 20 years, general uh, consensus among coral scientists was we should just monitor and observe corals and try and improve conditions around them. And, and just them like talk to them. <laughs> right. And just what really ended up happening is we just watched corals decline, right? Because we, were, we weren't really putting any effort into doing uh, hands-on work or any kind of proactive work. And so restoration came around and there was a lot of criticism of it at first as sort of a pseudoscience. And they said, you know, well, you shouldn't be touching corals. Well, that's but, really but, but, but you're not really touching corals and destroying them. That's right. You're touching parts of coral to see if you can regenerate. That's right. That's right. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. And this is where we were, you know, 100 years ago with reforestation. You know, you would lose forest and then we would try and replant forest or have forest grow back naturally. But there was a recovery of an ecosystem that had been impacted. That hadn't happened with coral reefs until really recently. And so when we got involved in coral restoration, there was really only one technique that we knew about, which was growing them in in-water nurseries. So they were underwater nurseries with frames that were anchored to the sand, and we would grow corals on those frames. In that environment. In that environment. And so that's a great technique, but the, it has limitations. Not only that, a storm comes up when they're not fully formed and you lose them. Right. You can lose them in storms. You can have somebody throw an anchor on them. It's hard to monitor these things. You have to be in the water all the time. Uh, with scuba gear to take care of them, maintain them, and do all the work of restoring. We've been speaking with Jay Keel, the vice president of Grupo Punta Cana's entire sustainability program. And earlier today, I had a chance to go with him to see a remarkable operation, uh, and basically an open-air lab, if you will, where they're in saltwater tanks, essentially growing coral and, and grafting coral. It, it, it's, it's something that you never thought you could actually do. That's right. So... Um, as I was explaining before, we uh, used to grow corals, and we still do this, um, in in-water nurseries. And so they were metal frames where we were growing coral species. It's very complicated and inefficient. And so there are new ways to do it. The techniques have evolved. But you were, you were doing that in the ocean. Yeah, we've been doing that for 15 years. But um, that's slow going. It's slow going. And the, one of the big challenges is it's really limited to one or two species that can grow in those conditions. Right. And so the idea of this new methodology called microfragmentation uh, is that you can grow more variety of coral species and have greater genetic diversity. And so the idea is essentially we're cutting these corals that fall off the reef. We recover pieces of coral that might otherwise die. And then we cut them in really small pieces using a special saw. And then we attach them to small ceramic discs and that encourages growth. So the corals put all their effort into growing as opposed to reproducing. And so that allows us to, to increase the growth rate of these corals considerably and in on-land nurseries. So they're in conditions that are much more favorable for maintenance. All right, so put this growth rate in some kind of time perspective for me. So if you think about uh, one of the massive corals, like a brain coral, those can take 50, 50 to 100 years to get to a considerable size, say the size of a car tire. Or a we don't have that kind of time. That's right. Now when we've got increased pressures on the reef, we've got climate change, we've got all these factors affecting them, we need some way to accelerate growth and get more tissue onto the reef, and specifically tissue that's already been proven to be resilient, so tissue that can survive. And so when we grow these corals in uh, microfragmentation nurseries... In, in, a, in a controlled environment. In a controlled environment, we can accelerate the growth somewhere between 50 and 150%, depending on the species and depending on the conditions. So what you're doing today will be placed back in the ocean, what, in five years, 10 years? Yeah, ideally, once we get um, all of the conditions right, and again, our lab, our microfragmentation lab is only about a year old, and we're still really playing with the, the water quality, with the types of coral, with the techniques. It's been done in Florida, but we're trying to replicate that now in the Dominican Republic and the conditions here locally. Once we really get this working the way we want to, we think that every six months to eight months to a year, we could be putting material back out onto the reef of different species. And we can continue to expand the nurseries on land and then train other folks in the Dominican Republic and expand these nurseries beyond Punta Cana. But at the same time, you have to educate all the the, you know, the interested parties. I That's mean, right. Uh, all the stakeholders, whether it's the fishermen, the developers, the tourists, That's right. right? And your own owners here at Punta Cana to say, okay, is it worth it for us to do it? Yeah. Well, I think we've been very fortunate, I think, uh, at Punta Cana Resorting Club and, and the founders of this company, they really have injected 
sustainability into the DNA of the company from the day one. It's, the company's been around for 50 years. And even in the earliest days, they were thinking a lot about water quality. They were thinking a lot about protecting local species. Uh, we saw the ecological reserve. That's been around for 25 years. And it's a beautiful uh, private reserve that was set aside. And instead of developing it for real estate or turning it into a, a amusement park or some other attraction, it was really set aside for conservation purposes. Like, yeah, I want to talk about that in, in, in a little bit. Because the thing that, that's interesting to me is you first have to start with the fishermen. Right. You got to say, okay, we're going to give you a new career. Because if you go back to the old school of fishing, you're going to overfish this place. We're not going to have anything to work with. Yeah, and I think rather than policing them and patrolling fishermen and trying to chase them around. It's an economic approach. Yeah, we found it's much simpler and much more effective to, to hire them or find new job opportunities for them. And so one of the first things we did was create an association of artisans and marine services. So this is not a new fishermen's association. This was a job opportunity for fishermen to do other things related to tourism or conservation. Like? So if one of the first things we did was train fishermen to be coral gardeners. So these guys were scuba trained and then they were trained to do restoration work and then we hired them and they would actually do the restoration maintenance of our nurseries that were in the water. So these guys went with scuba tanks and they still do this and they go down and clean the, the frames, they cut the corals and they transplant them back on the reef with supervision from our team. So we have this team of fishermen and this really, the most important piece of that was gaining the confidence of the fishermen. You know, it wasn't just some gringo promising him the sky. Because this is a fisherman who's been a fisherman like his father before him and his father before him. That's right. And there was some, some guys were younger, some guys were older, but, you know, they really hadn't been offered other opportunities. These were guys that were fishing because you can make a pretty good living at it. You don't have a lot of supervision. You work on the days you want to work. You've got some independence. But in reality, once they start getting a steady paycheck to do something else, it becomes much more attractive than to continue fishing. Fishing is a high-risk occupation. Well, so, you're not in control. That's right. And so some days you go out and you have a, a banner day and you bring in lots of fish, and other days you bring in nothing. That's right. <laughs> that would be my day. Right. So we started with coral fishermen, for coral, with fishermen becoming coral gardeners. And then we made it a real priority to hire fishermen. So we started hiring them as boat captains. Then we did a course and we trained the fishermen to become boat captains, not just for our resort, but to be certified boat captains. They could be hired by anybody. So it didn't really matter if we had to be hiring them ourselves or in our resort. They could be hired anywhere, but they just weren't fishing. Anymore. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. And I ride, I ride. A little bit of history here, and that is this. Let's go back to uh, 527 years ago when Christopher Columbus showed up. That's when he came face-to-face -face with Dominican food, when you think about it, and somebody who knows a little bit about that and the entire evolution of Dominican gastronomy, you will, is Luis Ross, who, by the way, happens to be the president of the Dominican Academy of Gastronomy. Luis, welcome to the show. Thank you, Peter. It's so, a pleasure. So I'm going to tell you about my ignorant approach to Dominican food. Ready? Here it comes. Rice and beans. Yes. You're laughing at me. Well, because... I this is what we eat every day. Right. Uh, we have a, a platter that we call Bandera Dominicana. It's a Dominican flag, which is composed of rice and beans uh, as some type of meat uh, prepared in a, in a, similar to a stew, a, a salad, green salad with uh, lettuce, tomato, avocado, and, and some plantains, uh, fried or, or, or ripe. Uh, done in different ways. Uh, but when the Spaniards arrived in 1492, uh, nothing of that existed in the island. Uh, they brought it later on. Uh, during, uh, at that time, the Indians, the Taino Indians, uh, uh, had other types of diet based uh, uh, mostly on, on root vegetables. Uh, rodents, uh, reptiles, uh, fish, uh, crustaceans. Uh, they also like very much the sea cow or the manatee. 
they also had a type of dog that uh, was a mute dog that it was is extinct extinct already uh, that they raised as, as pets but they also ate not a good idea no no <laughs> no But the bottom line is, then the Spanish came back and really brought their cuisine with them. They brought everything. Uh, the, uh, we didn't have rice. We didn't have plantains here. We didn't have uh, onions. We didn't have uh, garlic. We didn't have uh, uh, meat of cow, pork, uh, goats, nothing of that. And that was all imported at that That was point. all imported. Wow. And then it evolved from there. It evolved from there. So is there such a thing today as classic... Dominican cuisine. Classic, of course, is the Creole cuisine, which is the mixture of the Spanish techniques and ingredients with Taino, also Taino ingredients and techniques, and African, from the African slaves, with other influences that later on came, like the Lebanese, like the Chinese, like the... Um, um, The, Afri the U.S. Uh, 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 slaves that would escape and come and settle here. Uh, also from the, from the islands, the black slaves that came from the islands. Uh, also um, related to the sugar production that, that came to, to um, help in the sugar production. Uh, all that brought new forms of, of mixing ingredients and adding bring about what we have today. Well, lots of questions are coming out of that. So number one, you mentioned the Chinese. Is there a great Chinese restaurant in the Dominican Republic? Well, uh, Okay, you've answered the question. Okay. <laughs> it, there used to be. Yeah. Uh, there used to be the one that I liked very much. Uh, as a matter of fact, in, in the 1950s, uh, there was an excellent Chinese restaurant uh, uh, that lasted perhaps until early 70s, perhaps. Uh, it, it was in the colonial section, uh, close to the colonial section of, the, of Santo Domingo. Of course. Uh, and, all, and then in the 80s, uh, in the 90s, uh, the owner of an important hotel in Santo Domingo was Chinese, uh, and he brought an extraordinary Chinese restaurant, that, but then he sold eventually and, and left. That was that. But it was... Fabulous. Uh, you know, they would serve, for example, the pecking dog with white gloves. It was something out of the world. You need to bring that back. <laughs> no, we have, we have very good restaurants. Oh, even I know. Though, even though not Chinese uh, per se, uh, but we do have Chinese restaurants. I know. There's influence. But you mentioned Chinese, that's why yes. I had to ask the question. But today, as you begin to you know, evolve into classic Dominican cuisine today, Or New Age Dominican cuisine. Let's talk about that. I mean, does everything have to be fried? No, no, of course not. Uh, frying is uh, African influence uh, in our cuisine, uh, but everything doesn't have to be fried. I mean, uh, uh, our the like you say the the Nouvelle uh, cuisine. Well, the typical Dominican cuisine is uh, based on. There's a lot of sofrito, there's a lot of, you know, mixing the, the pre-cooking the, the garlic with the onions and the oregano and the tomato sauce and, you know, to, to make that uh, type of food that we call guiso, guisado. It's like a stew. It's very flavorful, but it's not something that you're that you when you're on a diet, you want to eat every day. <laughs> But, you know, it, it, you're always challenged in any destination to maintain the, the, the heritage of the, of the cuisine when you have so many other influences coming in or people whose idea of a vacation is to come out and have a McDonald's in Santo Domingo as opposed to traditional, you know, Dominican food. Of course. The, the idea or the, the movement that we are seeing that is taking place is that the the cooks in the Dominican Republic uh, are every day more conscious of the importance of the quality of the product and preserving the flavors, but not necessarily in the traditional form. You can take a, 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 a classic uh, 
plate from the Dominican Creole cuisine and transform it into something heavenly. Uh, if you have the talent, you have, if you have the knowledge and you have the creativity to do that. And if you're a good storyteller, because you want to talk about what it was and now what it is. And, and this is something that the Academy is trying to influence uh, by uh, recognizing the best restaurants in Santo Domingo, which we started doing that last year. And this year on the second version, we're going to do a special uh, certification for restaurants that provide uh, Dominican cuisine. Uh, as, and, as well as the history. As well as Israel. Luis Ross, the president of the Dominican Academy of Gastronomy, going way beyond just rice and beans. Yes. Thank you, sir. Thanks for joining us. Riding along in my automobile, my baby beside me at the wheel, cruising and playing the radio, with no particular place to go. Talking to Lebowit Lily Gurma, uh, I, I love your history here. An Ethiopian-American travel journalist, now living in Santo Domingo, and author of the definitive guidebook on the Dominican Republic. How did it's a that long story? How did that happen? <laughs> right. You were living in Washington D.C. I was in Maryland, in Washington D.C. for many years. Went to college there, and um, got burnt out as a lawyer, and decided to start traveling. So that was your escape. That was my escape, and, and I now started it's become traveling. your profession. Yes, it's become my profession. Well, it's been now about eight years, this travel writing. Why the Dominican Republic? Well, my publisher sent me here. To so you were book. just assigned. You had no idea. I was assigned, and I began researching around 2014. And then I uh, came back in 2015 and stayed an entire year while I was writing the book from scratch. And I lived pretty much in all the major provinces here in the DR and all the tourist areas and, every, and I love it. And all the non-tourist areas. And all the non-tourist areas as well. And you know, let's talk about that because so many people, here we are in Punta Cana, which most people know, you know, great hotels, great beaches. So many, and I, and I blame my fellow Americans for this, you know, they'll come down, they'll stay at the all-inclusives and I have nothing against all-inclusives, but yep. then they never leave the resort. That's true. And you know, I could veg at a pool in Cleveland. You know, I feel like that's changing. How? Tell me. They're getting out? Um, they're getting out more. Yeah. People are, are more curious to know the, uh, the culture and even just to have outdoor adventures. So. And yet the worst four-letter word that starts with F is fear. And you yes. know, how many people said to me when I was coming down here, Ooh, be careful, watch out, be careful. I've been coming down for 30 years. I've never felt unsafe. I, I got to tell you, it's really ironic. I mean, especially Punta Cana, I, I would say it's the safest part of the country is Punta Cana because tourism is so huge here. And most people who live here and work here understand the importance of it. So there's absolutely no way. Anybody, well, it's a huge job provider. It's a huge job provider. Absolutely. It's absolutely. an economic engine. Yes. And they got hit hard this year. So, you know, I would say it's, it's, it's almost absurd to me that it would be scary to come here. But as an American... Yes. And as a woman of color, you, you don't feel unsafe here. I traveled solo, Peter, like for the whole year, literally. And many of that was on public transportation as well as private cars. And, and you haven't lived and you've till you've driven in a, in a, in a Dominican bus. No. <laughs> Seriously, you meet everybody. It you you is, meet everybody. It is so fun. I mean, okay, I don't do it so much anymore, but it is fun. Because <laughs> you meet every, yeah, Dominicans are very chatty. That's what the, you meet chatty. everybody whether you want to or not. Yes, you hear all their life stories. <laughs> but, but, you know, so much of travel is storytelling. That's really what true, it is. True, What was the biggest surprise to you when you first came down here? Biggest surprise? There were many, you know. The cuisine is one. I think it's very little known. It's very varied beyond rice and beans. That surprised me. I mean, I would... I would well, rice and beans is I used staple. to walk into a restaurant yeah. and I, it was tr I mean, when I was new... I, First of all, to order in Spanish, you know, it's a whole thing. And then the different dishes. I had no idea. There were so many different dishes here. The other surprise was the variety in landscape. Um, I think a lot of people have no idea that we have these, you know, 10,000 feet mountains. They just think freezing beach. up there. They just think it's beaches. Yeah. And it's cold. It's seriously cold. There's chimneys and, you know, lodges with, with chimneys. And I had a blast one time. I, I went to an eco lodge in Valle Nuevo National Park. Explain where that is. That is in Constanza. It's about two hours north of Santo Domingo. And uh, it is one of the highest uh, elevated towns in, in the Caribbean, actually. And it's, it's really beautiful. Lots of pine trees. 
you know, lots of hiking, mountain biking, and agriculture. It's the heart of ag- agriculture in the DR. And then? <laughs> and then, so I went up to this cabin, and uh, there was a, and you know, they put my, my chimney on, and I was sitting by the fire thinking, I'm in the Caribbean, this is ridiculous. <laughs> but wait a minute, was it cozy and fun? It was lovely, yes. The only thing missing was a ski lodge. Yeah. <laughs> I don't ski. <laughs> By the way, I don't ski either. I drive a mean lift. Okay. That's it. I'll, I'll sit hey. in the chair. I'll make believe. All right. you know. And now that you're down here for five years now, your friends come to visit? My friends do come to visit, yeah. And what's it's, the big, it's interesting. And, and yeah, exactly. What's the biggest surprise for them? Because they're probably being told the same thing I was being told. Oh, be careful. Be safe. Um, they're not. No, they're not so concerned about that. And I think, I think they're pretty well-traveled. And so the, but what's they're, the biggest they're well traveled enough that they, they realize that uh, sometimes the media goes over the top. And what's the biggest surprise for them? Um, how friendly Dominicans are and how very welcoming and warm they are. So let's recap. You were sent down here on an assignment, not knowing anything about this place. You immersed yourself for a year writing the book. Yes. And you had so much fun doing it. You said, you know what? I'd be stupid to leave. I'm staying. By the way, she's the author of the Dominican Republic guidebook published by Moon. And... Uh, her name again is Lily Gurma. Gurma. I, I can't get it right. That's all I right. can't get it right. <laughs> That's pretty good. Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. My mother, God rest her soul. My next guest, he's a Chicago guy, somehow found himself down here. He's been down here for over 13 years as the, the Vice President of Hospitality for the Punta Cana Resort and Club, Alberto Ebreu. How are you, sir? Very nice to meet you, and uh, thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah, so I've been trying to give a sense of history of this entire region. It's a very young destination. It is. I mean, 50 years maybe, right? Correct. And But a lot has been done in 50 years. A lot has been done in 50 years. I mean... Imagine 50 years ago, there was literally nothing here. There was absolutely nothing here 50 years ago. It's, a, it's, a, it's truly an amazing story. Um, we're, as you know, we're celebrating our 50-year anniversary this year. And uh, when you go back in history and see what's happened here, it's, it's got to be one of the most truly amazing stories in tourism in the world. And the story that I've heard is that when, they, when, the, when the developers first came here, they had no idea what they wanted to do. They had no idea what they were going to do. Right? And somebody said, you're making a mistake. It's tourism. Uh, Mr. Ranieri was actually the person who thought about tourism first. The, uh, they started doing some uh, different kinds of businesses, and uh, finally he's, he was the one person at 24 years old who said, uh, we, I think that we can do some uh, tourism, uh, start a tourism incentive here. And, uh, there, was no, there was no airport here. There was no airport. There was, uh, there was a little small strip uh, uh, there to, uh, to land small planes. And uh, he came up with the idea of uh, selling this idea to New York businessmen uh, from very serious businesses. And he was 24 years old. Uh, he convinced them that, you know, let's try this. And, uh, and the rest is history, as they say. There's, uh, it's, it's, been, it's been an amazing, amazing story. It's, it's great to be a part of it. And in the evolution of all this, I mean, what did you guys know about tourism and hotel development? Nothing. The, the reality is that uh, nothing. Mr. Ranieri was the representative from Bell Helicopters at that point, and, <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he had some business in agronomy, and um, he basically saw the future. He just said, you know, this, this is what would work in this, uh, in this area, and they, um, they brought in Club Med initially, which was the first resort here, uh, with the land, small landing strip flying into Santo Domingo and then flying uh, small planes into so here. So they were chartering in here? They were char- Yeah, they were going into Santo Domingo and then bringing people with small planes. Uh, Club Med at one point said, you know, people don't want to do that. So they had to, bring, they had to build a uh, larger uh, airstrip, and that's really where the whole thing mushroomed. And uh, other companies came, saw the Club Med concept, and said, you know what, we can do this in our country. 
and that's really where it, uh, where it all started. And of course, now you have an airport that's privately run, privately operated, and you're getting flights from like what, 31 countries and 66 states. Uh, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. We have uh, 67% of the foreign arrivals into the Dominican Republic come through that airport. Every U.S. airline that I know of is showing up. Everyone. Right? Everyone. You got, you got everybody from American to uh, Delta to Spirit. Everybody. Everybody. Everybody is here. Um, I can tell you in 1986, when I started working, the, hotel, the only airline was American. And, uh, and they were coming out of Puerto Rico. And they were coming out of Puerto Rico, Miami. Uh, so it was American or swim. That was it. <laughs> By the way, that's their, that's their current branding model. Did you know that? <laughs> and, uh, but after that, uh, it's, it's, certainly, it's certainly grown. It's, uh, it's amazing. The, the lift that we have from uh, Europe, British Airways, Air France, uh, Condor, uh, it's truly amazing. South America, uh, Gol, uh, Avianca, Lan. Yeah, yeah. It's, if, it's, if you're a plane spotter, by the way, you go to the airport, you go to the VIP club, it costs you maybe 50 bucks to go in there. The only right. airport lounge that's got a pool. It's got a pool. It's fantastic. Right? Yeah. So you can spot planes at poolside. And if you're a plane geek like me, you're in heaven because everybody shows up. I, 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 I said in my house, I live three minutes away from here, and I have a flight rider 24. And oh, me when, too. I okay. love, oh, and when I'm, how cool is that? Uh, it's very, very cool. And when I'm doing anything, I'm just, I have that on the side. And it's, it's, I guess it's a little weird, but it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's not that weird. I do it. Come on. What are you talking about? It's great. It's a lot of fun. You look up and you see who's flying over. You punch a button and you find out exactly, exactly. who it is. Well, I love when I when I fly out the, the route, uh, usually to Miami, uh, we fly right above my house. And uh, and I've done that for 13 years. And I still have to look down and see like, my dogs in the backyard. And uh, what's your biggest challenge? Um, biggest challenge is that um, I mean, obviously, there's there's a lot of challenges uh, um, Our Challenges. English is not our first language. I would say that that is uh, uh, that is that is a challenge for the hotel industry in the Dominican Republic. That that you know we've worked very hard because we have a unique product here in, in Tortuga Bay and and uh, the Westin. But uh, that as a as a country, that would be the biggest challenge because there the, English is not taught from early from an early stage. So. Uh, that that takes a while for the American tourist to to get used to the idea that sometimes they're not speaking to somebody who speaks perfect English. Where in some other islands, that's their na that's their native language. But the Americans are still coming. They're still coming because we're just we're we're a fantastic uh, we're a fantastic value and uh, we have great product and the people are fantastic. Domin Dominicans are hospitable. Uh, Dominicans will invite you to their house and it comes from the heart. So, Alberto, you're saying that after all these years from Chicago, you're staying. I'm staying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm staying. Alberto Abreu, the vice president of hospitality for the Pusacana Group. The charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is You know, I'm a big fan of history, especially as I get older, I learn that everything I learned in, in school was wrong. <laughs> and now I get to actually put it in proper perspective, and that makes the biggest difference every time you visit a different destination, especially in the Dominican Republic, which had such a pivotal role to play in the discovery of all the Americas. And uh, joining me now, the director of the Alcazar de Colón Vice Regal Museum in Santo Domingo, and also the Ponce de Leon House, her name, Margarita Gonzalez Alfont. How are you? Fine, thanks. Did I get the whole thing out? Yes, correctly. <laughs> well, let's talk first. I, I want to talk about, and, and I've talked about this earlier on the show, by the way, you know, the whole history of Christopher Columbus. Yes. You know, when I was growing up, it was part of our education in, in second and third and fourth grade. We celebrated Columbus Day. He was the hero, the man who discovered America. In the last couple of years, I've been reading some serious biographies of this guy. Not such a nice guy. I mean, this is a man who may have discovered America, but before he was discovering America, he was around here. I mean, he, he spent a lot of time in, in this region. But the point is, you know, whether it's the Columbus Lighthouse in, in uh, Santo Domingo or anywhere else, you see his name just about everywhere. 
Yes, it, it, it just everywhere and just everywhere around the world. In the Chinese high school, they have to study Christopher Columbus. And the question is, what are they telling them? It, it, they're telling the truth. Well, you said that you have to change your ideas and your, your knowledge uh, through your life. The real thing is that history is a science. And we study all the time. I'm a historian. And there's not a different and when, story. And when, and when you were growing up, what did you, what did you study? About him, it, it, the same story. Yeah. Yes, and and I I don't agree. He said he was a wonderful guy, and and he he was aven, adventure. He likes to to know things, and he was very uh, visionary. And everyone in Europe think, thought that he was crazy. Everyone thought that he was telling nonsense. Oh, about the world being flat. Yes, it, but he was like a guy, a Renaissance guy, and no one believed him. So the only kingdom who believed him because it was important for them was Spain because Spain was in the uh, 6th, uh, 15th, 16th century in a very difficult situation because in 1492 they fight against Muslims and they they take the Muslims out the, the Spanish territory then they took out the Jewish community and send it to France and whatever so uh, in that year Isabella Catolica and Fernando el Catolico married so they reunite all Spain so they didn't have any money because the Jewish left with their money the culture the the Muslim Arabic culture left Spain and they have a very very hard situation so Isabella Catolica said well I don't have anything to lose <laughs> if he doesn't find anything I don't care but if he finds something and she was right he found he something and what I was really talking about was his methodology but that's okay uh, well I wouldn't like uh, the historians of the future to study my mental methodology. <laughs> You're warning us now? Yeah, because uh, uh, you are the product of your times. I agree on that. Yeah. See, and, and, and he believed that something nice could happen. He, he really had that dream. And he was very adventurous because to, to have three nows and, and cross the world, it's, it's easy to say. Yes. But I, I don't take any, any of them. <laughs> really <laughs> but he 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 knew that he arrived somewhere he didn't know where but he knows that that he arrived to a new land that that's wrong in history that he didn't know where he arrived no he knew he knew that it was in india but he didn't know what was so, you know what was amazing to me? What was amazing to me not was that he came and wonderful. discovered it. What was amazing to me was that he went back. He, sure, <laughs> he, because yeah. it was like heroic. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I always said that why no one ha had filmed that history because you go back with animals, with plants, with products, and with naked Indians to Spain. That was a court with all clothes and very traditional and very Catholic. So I really want to imagine how was these Indians walking in this court. It, it, it could be amazing. It was amazing. Oh. So yeah. when, when Isabella Católica saw that he came with all the products and animals and plants and everything, then he got the recognition and got the money because they believe him. So he had to go back, but in a big way. Sure. So that's what he did. And that's what you're seeing here now in the Dominican Republic yes. and in other parts of the world that he stayed, people now going back and learning about that. Sure, certainly. And the most interesting thing is that uh, he left his son, Diego, in the court of Fernando e Isabel when he came to America. And um, Diego was named vice, uh, vice king by Fernando e Isabel and established the first court in America, the, the first European court. 
in America was found in Santo Domingo. That's why we have so precious and beautiful uh, colonial city, because we were the first. Oh, the Spanish influence here is obviously huge. Well, imagine. Uh, everyone has to, to ask permission to go to Mexico, to go to Peru, or to go to whatever, to Diego Colón. Diego Colón was the, 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 the most high representative of the court, the European Spanish court in America. Exactly. And he came and established uh, this court in Alcázar de Colón, and he came with one of the most amazing women of that time, that is Maria de Toledo. Maria de Toledo was a, a, a very important um, family, very, very high standards. Um, and she came married with Diego Colón with 30 uh, ladies. Ladies in waiting. <laughs> yeah, to establish in Santo Domingo. And Diego came. And they survived the voyage. Oh, yeah, sure. They all survived. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, it wasn't so difficult. There was three months of, of journey. Trust me. <laughs> it was difficult. That one you're not getting off the hook. Okay. Okay, difficult. Muy <laughs> difficile. Okay. And then uh, she est stayed in, in the Alcázar, and she ruled uh, Santo Domingo in Las Americas because Diego... Uh, went to Spain in, in a lot of travels, like three or four travels, because he wants to be recognized all the titles and all the offers that the Corona did to Cristóbal Colón. Because that's a very nice uh, story, too. Well, we come back with Margarita González Alfont, the director of the Alcazar de Colón, and, of course, the Ponce de Leon House here yes. in, in, in the Dominican Republic. Exactly. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. I always like to go to the locals, and my next guest is not officially a local, but she might as well be because she's been living here for so long. Great story. Moved here from Gibraltar, if you can believe this. Uh, met her husband down here and has been here ever since. Writer and uh, author of uh, a number of cookbooks, but one mm -hmm. of which is called the, the Dominican Cookbook, Aunt Clara's Dominican the Cookbook. Cookbook, yes. Alana Benedy, how are you? I'm very well. It's good to be here again. Now, moved from Gibraltar. Mm-hmm. Working with, with an aid agency called yes. Oxfam, we were familiar with their work. I was actually living in the UK at the time, but I'm from Gibraltar originally. Right, and then moved here. Yes. Uh, what about the Dominican Republic? Obviously, you were here for work, but then what kept you here? I came here for work, and I'd worked in several Latin American countries and loved the whole continent. Every country I've been in had something special. But the Dominican Republic had something extra, and it helped that I met my husband and decided to move here. And what would it have? What did it have? It has um, well everything it's famous for and more. I think um, people imagine a small island with beaches, but don't know, you know, about the diversity and richness of the landscapes and just how much there is in terms of culture beyond the beach and the fun and the sun. Not to mention the cooking and the food. Well, the cooking was um, a particular interest of mine. The Dominican Cooking Project started in two thousand one. But when you first came here, it must have been mm -hmm. a brave new world. The Dominican cooking for you. Um, it was similar to other cuisines I'd experienced, but it does have some special features of its own. Such as? Well, um, for example, cooking with coconut was new to me. Um, the dishes that are made with coconut are particularly delicious, in my opinion. The fish, the shrimp, and the rice and pigeon peas. The fish, too? Yes. Uh, we went out the other day to Boca de Yuma, and I went out fishing with the guys. That's a great experience. Yes, I was going to recommend Boca de Yuma as one of the top outings to do from Punta Cana. The mouth of the, of the Yuma River. The, the Yuma River. It takes you off the tourist trail in a way. It shows you it's a, a typical Dominican town, a fishing village. And you can choose from like, quite high-quality cuisine in one of the restaurants in particular to eating in fishermen's shacks. You can visit the caves with the Taino car carvings. And there's 
little trips up the river that you can do with the local fishermen. So it's a wonderful experience, and the perfect day trip, in my opinion. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, given the choice of a, of a you know completely organized charter fishing trip or going out on a small boat with a 15-horsepower Yamaha, Absolutely. I'd pick the 15-horsepower Yamaha. <laughs> <laughs> and not just the engine, but the guy who's driving it. Must have been quite an experience. It was fun. And, uh, and the fish won. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to hear. What's the, when you think about the, the, the Dominican cuisine, what's your favorite dish and how complicated is it to cook? It's not difficult to cook. Uh, my favorite dish is actually a snack. It's the yuca fritters, cassava fritters. You grate the yuca, the, the cassava in English, and you mix it with a bit of sugar and a seed, an egg. I think that's about it. And then you just pour it into hot oil and you get these delicious, sweet, tangy, sweet and sour fritters. Now, a lot of the cuisine that I've experienced here, hot oil plays a part. Hot oil plays a part because fried food is very common, very um, like the plantains, the tostones, um, are, are fried in oil, obviously. Exactly. And is there a dish you have great difficulty making? The brice, which is the basic, is something that I think Dominicans can only master. I don't know any foreigners who manage to do it the way Dominicans do with the crusty, toasty bottom of the rice that everybody fights for during the meal. So basically, Alana's admitting to, to kind of a mushy rice. Yes, my rice comes out <laughs> mushy, I admit it. <laughs> and when your friends come to visit, because once you move to a place like this, you, you have a lot of visitors. Yes, we get lots of visitors. What's the biggest thing that surprises them? Well, they expect it to be just hotels and beaches. They don't realize there's actually a thriving community here in its own right. And that surprised me as well when I first came here. I really thought Punta Cana Bavaro was just a row of hotels along the coast with nothing else to offer but the, the hotels and the beaches. But I found, you know, Punta Cana Village, where I live, by the airport, is a little community in its own right. It's got a school, it's got a shopping center, and even a, a low-key cultural life and a good social life. Not bad. Yes, and we're near the beach. And of course, the elephant in the room, safety and crime. Safety and crime, well, it's not an issue where we live. And that's part of the reason we moved here. So no issue at all? Not at all. I mean, things happen like they do everywhere, but on the whole, it's safer than other parts of the country. So you're staying? I'm staying for the time being. Until you learn how to make rice. Yes, that's a challenge I'll have to <laughs> rise to soon. Alana Benedict, the author of Aunt Clara's Dominican Cookbook, and probably officially now a Dominican native. I, I'd have to call you that. Adopted. Adopted native. Okay. Thank <laughs> Thanks you very, very much. much. We much appreciate it. My next chef, no, my next guest, I was going to say my next chef. Well, he happens to be my next chef. That's right. Uh, he's also the senior executive chef at uh, Grupo Punta Cana. That's right. Santiago, Santiago Salamanca. That's Thanks right. for coming. Thank you very much, Peter. Uh, you're not just in, in, in charge of the food here at Tortuga Bay. You are in charge of food for all these resorts. That's right. How many are we talking about? We, no, we're talking about within the resort of the Punta Cana group. There are various outlets and uh, different kinds of outlets within the outlets. Now that you've given me a general answer with no particular information, let's try again. How many different restaurants and kitchens do you We in? have uh, eight different kitchens. Now we're talking. That's right. And that means servicing not just private homes, but the guests and all the different restaurants. That's correct. That's correct. So sourcing food. I remember when I first came to, to the Dominican Republic 30 years ago, sourcing well, food was not easy. Not at all. You not couldn't all. get anything. No, it was very difficult. I came here for the first time in 2003. And uh, when I arrived, I thought, where have I arrived to? And uh, that's changed tremendously since I came back the second time around. Okay, when you first came in, what was on the menu that you went, really? It was a bit of the same old, same old... Um, Let me guess, mahi-mahi. Yes, exactly. Followed by crusted mahi-mahi. Exactly. Followed by mahi-mahi in secret sauce. It was, basically, it was basically that. It was the same of all the same things that you could find everywhere. Always. So your challenge was how to make it different, but first you had to find it. Yes, we had to uh, first find it, as you said, uh, make sure that the source that came from was a trustworthy source, which that's, that's what the company has been doing for the last years. Uh, finding people that are serious. Uh, Local? Yes, definitely. So what are you getting locally? Well, we, we, we get uh, lobster locally, we get uh, camarones locally, we get uh, mahi-mahi locally, we get red snapper, uh, petalora. We get many things that are, that are local, uh, octopus as well. As well. 
Yeah. And then, of course, I'm going to throw one out there, goat. Yes, most definitely. Not most lamb. Definitely. No, goat. 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 Is, it, it, it's, I would say, the quintessential uh, dish here in the Dominican Republic. Cooked how? Normally, it's cooked as a stew. Because you've got to really cook it slow and low. That's right. That's right. But nowadays, we've got uh, um, vacuum packers. We've got uh, sous vide. We can cook things in a different way. Although, can I just say something? Yeah. This is the one item that you cannot say tastes just like chicken. No, definitely not. <laughs> Most definitely not. No, no, it doesn't. Though we do uh, have some techniques to make it uh, taste better than that strong uh, flavorsome taste that it has. Is it on the menu? All the restaurants have goat on the menu. All of them. Goat with secret sauce. <laughs> <laughs> Most definitely. Normally it's stewed, sometimes on the bone. The majority of times nowadays off the bone. Well, since you've gotten here since 2003, so we're talking 17 years later, just about. Yes, well, I, I, I came and then I left and then the, 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 the... Then the goats called you back. Yes, definitely. Okay. I couldn't... So, so since you first got here, yeah. what's the one item you would put on your menu that you think, wow, everybody's going to love this and it totally tanked? And then what's the one item you said, do I really have to put this on the menu and everybody can't get enough of it, they love it? Well, sometimes um, due to the clients that we have, um, uh, sometimes you'd say, oh, I'm going to put a good, a good goose liver uh, that, that doesn't belong to the country. And then all of a sudden, the, 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 the guests will say, well, we're not looking for this. We're looking for something totally authentic. Uh, authentic. So you scrap that out and then you go and say, go well, get the goat. go and get the goat, go and get the <laughs> goat. Anything that is um, particular to the island and things that you might even not even think about, like uh, squash, for instance, or uh, cassava, for instance. All right. Now, here's my biggest pet peeve, and I have no kids, okay? Okay. But sometimes I act like a kid. I That's hate kids' menus because the same things are always on the kids' menu, the chicken fingers and the grilled cheese sandwich. But is there anything that you have on that kids' menu that's truly innovative? I would say that we're looking more towards healthy uh, products nowadays. A lot of our, uh, the parents that come over, they're not just looking for the fried food. Though we do have them because a lot of our uh, American guests are looking for that. Of but course. We do use, we do use uh, products that uh, belong to, to the country. And we do use a lot of healthy products. Uh, we use a lot of vegetables nowadays. Which you're, you're also sourcing from locals. We, I, uh, I source locally, most yeah. definitely. Yeah. It's very important for the, for the uh, productivity of, the, of, of where we are. It's very important indeed. We use a lot of uh, our products from the Punta Cana Foundation. Uh, is there one signature dish that you have on the menu? I would say one of the signature dishes on the menu are the tuna, tuna cubes marinated in teriyaki sauce. Uh, the tuna is sourced uh, locally. And uh, obviously teriyaki is not, but we do use, for instance, lemongrass that is, uh, that is uh, sourced locally. We do use ginger this, uh, and cilantro, and that we mix with the teriyaki sauce, which we make ourselves, and that is a really nice dish. You know what I had it the other night? Not bad. Not bad. Not bad. Not bad. But, I never knew the, but I never knew the tuna was sourced locally. That's yes. the cool part. Yeah. Santiago Salamanca, the senior, not just the executive chef, the senior executive wow. chef at Grupo Punta Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you us. very much. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. Special thanks to our sponsors at Clear. Enroll in Clear at clearme.com slash Peter and zip through busy airports nationwide. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings.
Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.